is where we pick things up tonight, kind of stop toward the end of chapter 2 last week, under the constraint of time, and we pick things up in verse 11 tonight. And uh, I think it's important to understand as we introduced things last week, beginning uh, with chapter 2, to kind of understand what it is that Paul is kind of uh, building on. And Paul, again, this uh, very sequential in his thinking, uh, very... Uh, ordered in his thinking, and he lets us know in verse 14 of chapter 3 what he's, what he's building toward. This is his conclusion of what we find ourselves in the middle of. And he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And so how Timothy is to run the local church, uh, how he is to conduct himself, notice in verse 15, and the house of God. And, and the church is not open to definition by, by men, not by leaders, not, not by the congregation. God knows what he wants a local church to be. And he defines it here in the Scriptures. And one of the things that he's already said is that the local church, its emphasis is not to be fables and endless genealogies and legalistic teaching, but the emphasis is to be on sound doctrine. Then as we began chapter 2 last week, there's to be an emphasis on prayer. Then he spoke about the role of of the man within the local church and, and uh, his place of leading in prayer and what kind of a man God wants to lead in prayer in, in his church. And then he spoke last week as we saw about the appearance of women. The women are not to uh, adorn themselves, whether in dress or in jewelry or in hairstyles or these kinds of things. Anything that would draw the attention of people away from God and toward them. And there's a, there is a... Um, uh, it's, he's basically saying the same thing to both the men and the women, just in different, in different areas. Maybe he understands a weakness about the different sexes. But when he talks about the men lifting up holy hands and without wrath and doubting and all, and then he talks about the women in, in their adornment and that kind of thing, basically what he's saying is, I don't want anything in the room to compete with me. I don't want the hypocrisy of men. I don't want their wrath, I don't want their anger, I don't want their unholy hands. But I, I also don't want the appearance of, of a woman to draw attention to themselves. The local church is about meeting with God and it's about Him and nobody's to take, take the spotlight and pull it off of Him and put it on, on, him, on themselves, whether male or female. And we have a tendency to do that in different kind of ways. And now... He talks, beginning in verse 11, about the uh, spiritual role of women uh, within the local church. And he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And he's talking about church, not talking about home. But in the public assembly, he said, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. In the teaching... Uh, or the learning part of the service, the woman is not to teach and she is not to have spiritual authority over a man, but she is to be silent in that regard uh, in, in the local church. Now, biblically, she is free to serve in many, many ways in a local fellowship. 
She is free, a woman is free to teach other women, in fact, commanded to do. That Paul wrote to Titus, and he said, But as for you, Titus 2, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober and reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so a woman is free and gifted by God to teach other women. She is also free to teach children in, in the local church, also to exercise spiritual gifts. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is the one and the same as if her head were shaved. And so Paul is, obviously there was the exercise of spiritual gifts on the part of women uh, in the early church. He was simply talking about the proper way for her to do it. She also uh, evidently had a, a role in the public prayer of the local church. It was just that she was to be properly adorned in, in order uh, to do that. The lone prohibition here in the passage is that she is not to teach, that is, she is not to lay down doctrine to men, and she is not to have spiritual authority over men. Now, now verse uh, uh, 12 just really could not be any clearer than it, than it is. It's the culture that wants to fight with God on, on this issue uh, at, the, at this particular point in time. But she is not to teach men, and she is not to have spiritual authority over men. It is contrary to God's command in His Word for a woman to ever be in that position in the church. It should never happen. can't be clearer than it is in the passage. A woman is never to be a pastor or a co-pastor of any church because that is to exercise spiritual authority over men within that church. And she is never to teach from a lectern or in any kind of behind anything. She is never ever to teach in a setting where both men and women are present. And teaching is very simply the reading of the Word of God the explaining of what the passage means, and then the applying of it to the lives of the listener. A woman is never to have, open up a Bible before a congregation and read a passage and then explain that passage and apply it in a mixed audience. She is never, ever to do that. And uh, uh, God says that that's just how, what He doesn't want to have happening uh, in the churches. It should never, ever, ever happen. Now, I have a, a good friend who uh, tries to get around all of this, and uh, so he, has, he works it kind of this way, that uh, he has his wife teach at times. And uh, he says, well, when she teaches in front of the congregation, she is, um, she is under my authority, and, and so... Uh, under my authority, she's able to do that. That's bogus. I'm not buying that at all. That, that's just trying to get around what God is saying here, friend or no friend. 
He is trying to get around the clear teaching of the Word of God in, in this situation. That clearly taught she is never to teach men. She is never to have spiritual authority over men. Now, it has absolutely nothing to do with the value of women or the importance of women or the abilities of women. Men are not more valuable than men. They're not import, more important than the, men are not more important than women. They're not more valuable than women. They're not more able than women. It all has to do with authority. And God has chosen to give men, knowing how he's made men and women, he has chosen to give spiritual authority to men to lead the church. Now, I think it is a great mistake on the part of women, uh, especially in this culture, Western culture, but I think it's a great mistake for a woman to think as she reads something like this to think that, you know, uh, that because women, submission is spoken of here, you know, in the context of the woman, that she is the only one that's called to submit in the church. The man must submit equally to God in taking his role of leadership uh, within the church and to be what God has called men to be within the church. I think the average man would rather fish. So, so you, what you have here, though, is you, everybody is submitting here and taking the role that God has assigned them to them. I, I, I've, I, I hope uh, nobody thinks that every man is eager to lead <laughs> in anything. Uh, so, but why do men lead? They're commanded by God to lead in the ways that He has commanded us to lead. So they do it out of uh, submission to the Lord. Uh, and so this is what the Lord speaks here related to this. To me, you know, when I got saved, I, 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 I don't care what God chooses to do, frankly. Uh, he's God, and, <laughs> and I am, you can fill in the blank. I mean, I'm dust. And he's just not going to get an argument from me. When I came to know the Lord, I, it, it, I had already had a few years to try and prove how smart I was, and I came away uh, fairly uh, unconvinced and unimpressed. Uh, and surely everyone around me was. So God doesn't get a beef from me. He, he doesn't, I don't come to the Scriptures and try and hammer these things away or try to make them say something other than, than what they say. If He wants to put, give women that position, I'll be glad to take the other position. If He wants to give men the position, then I'm going to take the position. He's smart. He knows how He's made people. He knows how He wants His church run. That's how He wants His church run. And so that's why we do it. Now, uh, some of this uh, creates a problem. Uh, for some women who want to teach and they want to have spiritual authority over men in the church and it creates problems for some men who are very, very content to, to be taught by women and uh, they want to be led by women. And uh, one of the things that's spoken of here to try and get around all of it is, is Paul speaks in verse 2 where 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. I said, he says, I do not permit. And so he says, well, he, he's, he's giving his own opinion here. He wouldn't do it. Ah, oh, wait a second. How did the epistle begin? The epistle began, not Paul, a good friend of Timothy. This isn't a friendly piece of correspondence. Paul began the epistle by declaring his apostleship. In other words, everything that follows here, he is writing as an apostle. This is not his opinion. This is how the church is to be run. This is the mantle under which the letter is written. 
Sometimes people will look at this section of, of Scripture and they'll say, well, none of this has anything to do with us today. Paul was just addressing kind of a particular uh, cultural situation of his day and that our culture today is different and thus we don't have to accept his teaching. I mean, sure, because it was a patriarchal society and all of that and, and uh, you just have to bear that into account. If Paul were alive today, he wouldn't teach this. Now, the interesting thing about God in, in the whole passage is he almost, it's almost as if he anticipates the objection. And, and he addresses the objection or, or an attempt to go down that particular uh, path. And, and in verse 13, he, he literally destroys the objection uh, on, uh, concerning those kind of grounds for ignoring his command. The Holy Spirit is declaring. Paul isn't arguing here from culture. He's arguing from Scripture. And you notice in verses 13 and 14, when Paul takes to bolster the position biblically, he goes all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So God is saying this is not a cultural thing for, you know, 64 A.D., that this is an order that God has had from the beginning of the creation of man and woman and the fall of man and woman in, in the Garden of Eden. So he goes back to original creation as, in Genesis as the basis for this commandment. Now it's interesting when you go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, we discover that even in original creation, before Adam and Eve fell in the garden and sinned, before they were ever in a fallen condition, man was created first, as Paul declares here, and woman was created second. And not only was there an order to the creation, but when woman was created out of man, she was created as a helpmeet to man. Not after the fall. That's not a consequence of the fall. In original creation... When God looked at it and said, this is good, this is very good, the woman was created as a helper to the man. It indicates that man is in need of help, but he's not in need of a leader here. So she was created as a helpmeet to man. She was not created in original creation to lead man, but to be a helper to him. Now, then in verse 14, Paul reminds us, that it was Eve who led mankind into sin. Now, I don't personally believe, and I know that many try to lay a case for it, that the reason that a woman can't lead in a church is that she is more susceptible to being deceived than a man in general. That may or may not be true. I have no interest in engaging in that argument uh, this side of heaven, and I won't be concerned about it when I get into heaven. Uh, but... So I don't think it, you look at the cults and the false religions that have been created under the banner of Christianity through the years, and uh, there have been many women that have done it, but there have been many men that have done it. I don't think anybody can lay too firm of a, a, a case uh, for that. But it was Eve who led mankind into sin. And how did it occur? It occurred when she decided to move from the position of the helpmeet to taking the position of leadership over man. And she listens to the devil. 
She takes the position of leadership, a position that she was not called to by God and not gifted for. And she violates God's order. She made the decision, independent of Adam, to listen to what the devil was saying. And the result was the fall of man in the Garden of Eden and all of the consequences that have followed. The woman was deceived, the Bible teaches. Adam, he willfully sinned. He's a, he was a transgressor in, in his sin in the garden. So Paul's prohibition there in, in verse 12 concerning the woman had nothing to do with the culture of his day. Nothing to do with the culture of his day. And he wants to make that clear. It has everything to do with his knowledge of the Bible from Genesis all the way through. Now, sometimes in an attempt to get around all of this, somebody else will say, well, Jesus was silent concerning all of this, so it must not have meant anything to him. If Jesus was silent in words, it's only because he was so loud and clear in his actions. When he called 12 disciples to be with him, he called 12 men. When he called 12 apostles, he called Twelve men, always chose men. And I don't think anybody in their right mind uh, would come and say, well, the Lord was dominated by the culture of his day. He would have never done it that way if the culture had been, been different. Now, so, as you kind of look around the church, and uh, maybe you've wondered through the years why in the world we do things the way that we do them, or you look at it today, or you wonder in the future how come... There aren't women up in the pulpit teaching, men and women in, in a mixed kind of group and all that. It's because of just simple obedience to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And uh, so that is the role of women that Lord wants them to have in the mixed group of, of men and women within the local congregation. So you look around the church here and you see... Uh, women involved in teaching women, uh, women involved in teaching children. Uh, you see women on the worship team. You see women greeting. You see women um, at the uh, the doors and all, and the and the kind of things that uh, that they're doing there as people come in into the church and all. Women praying with other women after the church, but but not in, not doing these other things. Now some uh, sometimes. Uh, I'll get asked, you know, about how come we don't have women ushers in the church? And uh, why do we just have men ushering in the church and, um, and if there's no women that get to do the ushering people to their seats? And, and I, I want to be clear related to this. The reason that that happens is because that's the way I want it to be. <laughs> and here's why. I'm old-fashioned this way. And if I'm guilty of it, then I'm guilty of it. You can pray for me. My wife does not open my door for me when we come to the door of our house. She does not open my truck door for me. It's one of the places where, as, as a, a man, I, I, the desire to nurture, the desire to protect, the desire to lead... That, that's what sits right with me. And if I come into a church and a woman is leading me to my seat as a man, I'm not interested in it. It, it doesn't sit right with me. It's not the way that, it, that is, is right to me. 
That's the role of a man to do. And, and, I, and I think it's a great mistake for the church to try to strip away every kind of difference between men and women. And, and so that's why uh, you, you see that in, in terms of the structure of our, our churches. Again, if that's a fault, this church, if it's a fault, then I have it. Now notice God gives a promise to women in verse 15. He says that she will be saved in childbearing. Now, if the woman looks and she says, wow, uh, in light of what God has done in terms of the authority structure within the church, you know, that is, is she might look at it and become concerned about that her importance is going to be lost under, under this authority structure. And, and God, in essence, says that's impossible. He's guaranteed that the influence of the woman will never be lost. And you know why? Because by His design again from original creation, He has given the woman the vital place and the grand scheme of things that her place is going to be protected by virtue of childbirth, by virtue of the fact that He has designed her to do what no man can do, and that is to bring children into the world. And so God has guaranteed the place of influence, the part of a woman within a, within a church, but certainly even within a culture, irreplaceable influence that she has and that she is the one that God has chosen to bring children into the world uh, through. Now imagine if, if He gave all authority to the men in, in this sense, in the, in the local church, and then He, he had men bringing children into the world. Well, that would be fairly lopsided. Uh, but here he gives the woman the privilege, the influential place within the church, the body of Christ, within the culture. She brings children into the world. But then if she clamors and tries to take all of the authority within the church, then that's completely lopsided too. God has found a way, knowing again, the gifts and in, in, in how He's made men and women. He has spread out how Christians are to be influential within the culture. And He's called them each in their area. The men has that place within the church, the woman within the home and the raising of the children. Someone has said, and very, very well said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Nobody can doubt the influence, for good or bad, that a mother has in, in the world. Now notice he says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So her place of influence is guaranteed by childbearing, but it will be made even greater still by the presence of these things with, within her life. So as she grows in these things, and faith and love and holiness, self-control, then raises her children in these things, then her influence in the world by way of, of godly children and a godly home will be every bit as influential for God in this world as what the, God does through the men in the church. And her influence will be in raising the next group of leaders, the next generation of Christian leaders in the body of Christ. 
And so she's called to give herself to growing in these things rather than trying to take man's role from him. The idea isn't that the man is supposed to compete with the woman or the woman is supposed to compete with the man. They are to complement one another. And looking at the grand picture of the world and saying, how can we influence this world for God? And God says, here's how it will happen. I've given a portion of the privilege and the responsibility to men and the leading of the local church. But I've given, though different, just as important a responsibility and a privilege to the women in the raising of children within a godly home. And I think if the woman has the influence of motherhood and then she also wants uh, to try and take, uh, you know, lead in the second great place of influence within the culture that God has designed, she wants to lead the church, then what will the man be left with? He will go fishing on things. I personally don't believe that a man will ever compete with a woman. If she looks at this and she says, "Um, I uh, do not accept this, I want that role. I'm going to fight for that role. I don't think a man typically will fight with a woman over it. Not for ushering, not for any position. They'll just look and say, I don't fight with women. I don't need the aggravation. I'm not, it's not the way God has made us. So say they want it so bad they can have it. And then pretty soon... They have that entire area of things. Men move away and then they look around in the church and they say, how come no men come to church anymore? And and it's already happened in the liberal denominations, the body of Christ, where you look around, they're completely dominated by women. But, But in evangelical churches... Churches that have been known, you know, 20 and 30 and 40 years ago for sticking to the Bible and believing the Bible related to this and and all of the things that it teaches and all. You see them caving on this front today because of the pressure of of the culture. And and so typically what you have in in some of the churches today, in in my humble opinion, is is that you have strong male leadership in the birth of some of these larger churches that are happening there. And, And then, because of the pressure now, they're going to put women in positions beyond what God has ordained in His Word because they don't want the hassle, they don't want to fight the thing, they want to be attractive to all the different kinds of people in the church. And of course, the most important thing is that the church be big. That's all God cares about. And so they begin to succumb to these things. But you can never judge it by the first generation because the male leadership can be in place and there can be enough of it in place for the church to operate halfway right. The jury is out on it. Show me what it looks like in 30 years if the Lord tarries. And I don't think it will be very attractive. And I don't think that men will be in that environment. It's, it's not the way that He has made us. And so the passage is very, very simple. It is very, very clear. God knows how He wants all of this spread around, and He spreads it around, and that's why we do things the way that we do them here. Chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, 
If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So now uh, Paul moves on to talk about the kind of leadership that God wants to have within the local church. And so he declares, faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Nothing wrong with a man desiring to be a bishop or to be an elder or a leader within the local church. Nothing wrong with that desire at all. Now one of the interesting things is today it's changing in our culture but you know to be an elder or to be a deacon in a local church you know and then to have that position within the community at least in you know recent years and all that was something that was looked up to in a, in a person's life. That was kind of a notch in, in their belt and also people could be striving to have these positions you know in order to um, you know for different for wrong motives but when Paul wrote this he's writing this during the period of Nero's persecution of the early church it is a time in church history when to be a Christian put your life in danger to be a leader and a recognized leader in a church for sure meant tremendous persecution and even the possibility of death. Now what that did is it, it kind of weeded out the ranks. You didn't have to put out a ministry questionnaire. Because <laughs> if you were just in it, you know, for you know, position or I like to lord it over people and be in power and I like to be in front of people and boss people around as if, you know, that's what ministry is and, and all. But, and then you say, well, you know, you could die doing this. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I probably shouldn't just be a hog and take that title from somebody else. You know, so it would, it would weed through. So what I needed in the early church was an encouragement. If God's put that desire in your heart, that's a good desire. That's a good desire. But, but notice what he says, the, the position of a good work, uh, the, the position of a bishop desiring it, he desires a good work. And, and that, that's what the position is. What an elder is in a local church is an elder oversees the spiritual welfare of the local church. And uh, the deacon is different. We'll get to that uh, in three weeks probably. But no, we might get to it tonight. But, he, but the, de- the deacon oversees the physical aspect of the church, but the elder oversees the spiritual. The teaching of the Word of God, prayer, loving people, tending them, caring for them. Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Tend my sheep. This is, this is what the elder elder does his position to, to nurture the spiritual growth of, of the local church. And he, and he says, it's a good work, but it's work. It's work. It's, it's hard work. It's not just saying, listen, I want to come to church and I'd like to have this title because I'd like to have a, some kind of an elder badge or something like that. It, the, the, title, the, the, the title means nothing. It's a calling to hard work. And, 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 uh, and it's a working position within the body of Christ. Sometimes, you know, you can get the kind of deal where somebody will come up and say, you know, um, boy, I've... I've been fired from five jobs in the last two years. <laughs> I think God's calling me into the ministry. And you just, for me, you just run in the opposite direction. 
It, it, because it, to, to come in and to serve the Lord in this capacity, it's hard work. And a person needs to understand that, that there is work involved. It's a good thing. It's a good work. It's an honorable way to spend our life is literally what it's saying. But it's hard work. It's not just a title or an office that you get. But God's calling us to do, do work. Now, it's interesting that a desire for the title isn't enough. has to be coupled with gifting has to be coupled with a calling of God, and it has to be coupled with godly character. All of those things need to be, be happening in a, in a person's uh, life. So the, and, and one of the things I remember hearing years ago, uh, he was my, my pastor at that time, and he was speaking to a leadership group of, of leaders, and he said one of the most hardest things you'll ever deal with in, in ministry is, is having to say no to someone who is trying to exalt themselves beyond their gifting and beyond their calling. And it's true because it's a mess when you do it. So it's not enough just to desire that, and I'm going to get that. There has to be calling, there has to be gifting, and there has to be godly character associated with it. So he's going to describe now the kind of character that a bishop or an elder needs to have. He's going to list 15 things here. You know the most interesting thing about it is that 14 of the 15 things have to do with his character. Only one thing has to do with his gifting that he be apt to teach. He's not minimizing the importance of gifting, but what he's, he is emphasizing is the importance of godly character related to this office of an elder within a church. These titles just don't get handed out in, in all kinds of, of different ways. One of the, one of the most uh, damaging things that can be done through, through a local church is, is for men to be in leadership who lack godly character. They stumble a lot of people, and so God recognizes that they have a tremendous influence in, within a local church, and so they're to have uh, godly character. I remember, I'll never forget it. And, you know, as you think about, not just anyone's supposed to be put in a position of leadership. It was in the early years, uh, and I, I've told the story before, but when you're any place for 19 years, uh, that's going to happen. But I remember in the early years, uh, we were downtown, and I got a phone call from uh, a woman who wanted to come to the church, but she wanted to ask a few questions about coming to the church. And, and they used to have a club uh, down there on uh, uh, Prescott and all, and it used to be called the Pavilion. And, they, and it went through a lot of different kind of changes through the years and that kind of stuff. But it was a pickup place back in, you know, in the mid-'80s and, uh, and all. And there was this woman who was down there dancing and all and everything, and everybody's trying to pick everybody up and all this kind of stuff and everything. One, one night, Saturday night, she just got sick of it. She says, I'm going to church the next morning she got up and she went to the church that was just down the street from, from where she lived and she walked in and the man that was greeting at the front door when she walked up was one of the main pickup guys at the pavilion. And I mean, she's like shaking on the other end of the line and she's asking before she tries another church, will I run into that if I come to church there at Calvary Chapel? And, and those are the kind of stakes that, that there are. People can be driven away from the Lord with, without leadership that ha, has this kind of, of character. And a, and, a, and a leader must have this kind of character. You can be successful in business. 
be successful in athletics, you can be successful even in politics and all, and, and not have character, godly character. But no one, well, no one can hope to be successful as a bishop without godly character. So he begins to list it. He says, the bishop then must be blameless. Now this doesn't mean that the uh, elder is absolutely perfect or, or sinless. I know you've come to be used to that almost, you know, here. It's just, I'm just teasing, just teasing. Got to keep a sense of humor. around. But what, what he's saying is there shouldn't be deliberate, ongoing disobedience to the things of, of God. In other words, an elder is to be free from accusation. Or, and, 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 and pastors and elders, they get accused of all kinds of things and you have to be careful to get the facts on things. Anybody can accuse anybody of, of anything. But the accusation, if it's made, it can't stick to the person because their life, they're living a godly life and, and a blameless life. So the accusation can't stick uh, against them. And so you should, the elders should be able to, you know, if you were to take, if, for instance, if you were to take me and uh, walk me around town and take me to the grocery store where I shop and the place where the car is serviced and then over to this place and to this place and all, and if you were to then introduce me as your pastor, you know, their heads shouldn't go down and go, oh, well, if you knew what he was like when you're not here with him, you know, that kind of a thing. Life is to be blameless. Then he says that he is to be the husband of one wife. Now, that doesn't mean that an elder needs to be married. That's not the point that he's making. Uh, Paul wasn't married at the time that, that he, he wrote this. It doesn't mean that a man, uh, if he's ever been widowed or if he's been divorced for biblical, on biblical grounds, he's divorced someone on biblical grounds and he's remarried, that he can't be an elder. I remember, again, in the early years of this church, there was a man that I, I approached to be an elder in the church and and uh, he said, well, he said, you ought to know that I'm, I'm divorced and, and I've remarried. I said, well, tell me a little bit about that. He said, well, my wife left me for another man and this and this and all. And, and so he divorced her on biblical grounds. It's not saying that that kind of person can't now hold the office of, of an elder. What it means literally is that the elder is to be a one-woman man. He's to be a one-woman kind of man. He's committed to his marriage. He loves his wife. He doesn't think he's a player and he's out looking around and, and all of that. That's a settled issue in his life. He is about one woman, the woman that he is, is married to. So he doesn't have an eye for the ladies. And then we're told that he's to be temperate. He's to be calm or well-balanced. So he's not driven to these extremes. And, and he's going to, an elder's going to make a lot of decisions in a, in a church, and he's going to, he's going to be talking with people that are going to bring problems to them, and they're going to wonder, you know, what should I do here biblically? What does the Bible say? And he can't, you know, listen to a problem and say, kill him! I'd kill him! You know, kind of, Marty Feldman eyes coming out of his head, you know, and the whole thing. And you've got to be calmer than that. And, and, and he's got to weigh the thing on the basis of, of, of the scriptures and all and be calm and deliberate in his decision making. In addition, he can't be driven to extremes where uh, the leader of a church can't be one who, who's in charge of the spiritual direction of a church, you know, pulling it over in that, this direction because this is the latest craze and then yanking it over in this direction because this is the latest craze and then pulling it over in this, this direction. That, that's a, a, a man that lacks temperance and and he shouldn't be an elder. And then he needs to be sober-minded. He needs to be serious about what God has called him to. doesn't mean he doesn't have a sense of humor. 
That doesn't mean that he, he never laughs in life or never has fun or anything like that, but he's not a clown. And, and, and he's, not a, he's not childish about what God has, has called him to. He's dealing with eternal, not just life and death in people's lives. People, people act, people make decisions on the basis of what leaders say within a church. That's attested by the Word. But, but people are, give great weight to what an elder will say. And, and, and he's dealing with life and death even in, in a physical sense, but even more he's dealing with eternal life and death in terms of people's lives. So, you know, a surgeon or an airplane pilot, or what they ought to have a sense of humor and, and that kind of thing, but boom, when something hits and now's the time for 100% concentration because people live or die based upon what I do for the next half hour, they better be sober about that. And, and that, that's what's to mark the Christian too. Because we're dealing not only with the temporal, but we're dealing with what happens to a person eternally. So he needs to be sober-minded. Then he needs to be of good behavior. I'm working on an awful lot of these things, by the way, so don't write me a letter. But, but it really means to be uh, orderly. It means to be dignified in the best sense of the word. In other words, the elder is always on his best behavior. I love Bill McDonald for this. I mean, I've, I've watched him from near and far and all since I was a teenager in junior high school. Bill's now in, in, his, in his 80s living over in San Leandro. I've never seen him not one time off duty, ever, ever as a Christian. He's always on as an ambassador. He's always on as an elder within, within the church. All, he doesn't do anything questionable, and that's what it's called. A good behavior, always on his best behavior, doesn't do questionable things. Then he's to be hospitable. He's to like people. Elders ought to like people. He's not just, you just don't put him up in some kind of a tower and, and all he does is study and he prays and all and has nothing to do with people and those kinds of things. He needs to have hospitality toward, toward people. He needs to like people that he's ministering to because it's a people kind of, of calling. There's a fellow, I won't give his, his name, but he's an interesting man and his, his writings are very, very... Uh, widely read. But he did an interesting thing when he was uh, candidated for the church that he ultimately took over and made famous. And he spoke to the, the, uh, the, the board that was looking for a pastor, whatever that group is called, that candidate kind of a deal and all. And he said, I'll come to the church as long as I never have to do a visitation, as long as I never have to do any counseling, as long as I can study and pray and be alone with God as much as I want to, on those conditions, I will come and be the pastor of your church. And they brought him in. And he became known not only for zero contact with the people that he was pastoring, but he carried that over into his family and created tremendous problems for his children as, as they were growing up. And the interesting thing is what he writes is so excellent, but it's so hard harsh because it's written independent of contact with the human element, with people. And I think he would have been so much more effective if he had had that contact with people 
and, and had this hospitable heart toward people. Notice he is also to be able to teach. The, the great, one of the greatest definitions for teaching in all of the Bible is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, where God declares, And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And, and what teaching is, is, it's a great little way to remember it, REA. Read, explain, and apply. And that's all that teaching is. And I'd simply confuse it every week for you. It's much simpler than, than what I do. But it's just to read the passage, explain what's happening here, and then how does this apply to our lives today. And that's what teaching is. And, and the reason that I make a big deal out of that is that um, today, because there's such an elevation and uh, elevating of the kind of entertainment, charismatic personality, we're entertainment-driven and this kind of thing, that it carries over into the church, and unless the guy's up there, you know, and where's my handkerchief, you know, what do I got here? I got a purse up. This is what I got. Wait a second, what's in here? I've got a chapstick and a thing. No, somebody left this. But you know, we, get, we, we think that, oh boy, he's not a very good teacher because he didn't do a cartwheel and fly off the end of the thing and the whole and, and, and everything. And, and, all. And, and I think that what happens is, you know, Joe Blow here, he's called by God to be an elder, but he goes, man, I, I can't do that. All I can do is read the passage, explain what, what, what God is saying there and apply it to our life. And I think we're going to, in the potential to lose a whole generation of teachers if they think that teaching is this other thing. That's all that it is. But there has to be the ability to do that. So a pastor must be able to teach. He must have a gift to do it. That does not mean that everyone with a gift to teach in the body of Christ is automatically a pastor. And I think that that happens very, very often where a person says, I believe that God has given me the gift to teach in the body of Christ. And maybe, you know, as you exercise that gift, tremendous fruit related to it. And then to automatically think, God has also called me to be a pastor by virtue of that. Not necessarily. Maybe, but not necessarily. I think that for the, the calling of a pastor, there also must be a, a gift related to wisdom on, on things, an ability to see things pretty clear on things and make decisions. have to have also the gift of leading. And, and so it's a little bit different than just the gift of teaching and, and, and all. But, but So while the, t- the teacher may not be a pastor, the pastor must always be a teacher. He must have uh, that gift. And then he's not to be given to wine or literally one who sits long at wine. He's not to be a drunk or one who comes under the influence of, of alcohol. Uh, Paul wrote uh, to the church at Ephesus and he said, Do not be drunk with wine uh, in which is a dissipation or a wasting. Nothing ever good comes out of being drunk. You know, you don't see a book, The Ten Virtues of Drunkenness or... It, nothing good comes out of being. It's a waste. It is a waste of life. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of a day. It's a waste in every way. And, and, then, and then he gives the way not to waste our lives as Christians, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Bible does not say that a Christian cannot drink. Uh, in those days, you know, you'd go around the water. Uh, the water in ancient times wasn't as, as good as ours is today. Well, it might be as good as ours. you love Brita? Wow. You go to the restaurant and they get 
that the whole thing is lemons that they put in there to try and mask the thing. Anyway, I'm thankful for all of it. I'm not complaining. Just kidding around a little bit. But, but they didn't have the purification. So, so uh, very often when you'd have your meal, or especially like with Timothy and Paul as they're, as they're traveling and, and all these kind of things, they're coming across a lot of different water supplies. It's a problem for missionaries. And so if they'd have a little bit of wine, the wine, of course, the alcohol content would, content would kill a lot of things within that, and they could safely drink that. It's like going to another country and drinking a Coke. Uh, and uh, that, that's the reason I use for drinking uh, Pepsi in other countries. And nothing uh, could survive that combination of, of things in that can. But, but that's what they would do. But the alcohol content in those days was different than today. You know, you pick up a bottle of wine in, in, a, in a moment of ungodliness, and you just look at the thing. I'd, I'll be good here. And, and you look and you see, you know, alcohol content... 10%, 12%, 14%, 8%, something like that. So the percentage is pretty high in, in the wine. In those days, 2%, 3%. So a person could have two or three glasses of wine with a dinner and, and be unaffected uh, by that. But a safe, a safe beverage for them uh, to drink. And so the elder is not to sit long at wine. I do think that Christians, and, and especially leaders, we have to be very, very careful uh, to think about our culture a little bit and how it views uh, alcohol and, uh, and, and how people uh, view it. I think it can tend to stumble a lot of people. If you were, if you were to go into a, um, uh, a restaurant or say a pizza parlor or something like that and you walked in and I'm sitting there having a pizza and I've got a big pitcher of beer in front of me, would you str- don't shout out, but there might be one or two of us that might struggle with that. Say, oh... Hi, Pastor Damien, and then you're just looking me right in the eye. I don't see any beer. I don't see any beer at all there on that big pitcher of beer that you've got right there having the pizza. You'd need to eat five pizzas not to get drunk on that. What are you doing here, buckaroo? And think, so you're just looking, you know, I'm not seeing this, I'm not seeing you walk out, and you go, wow, I'm a little bummed about that. Or, or, or the wine of that kind. I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm saying leaders need to be really careful. There was a time where a couple in the fellowship invited Karen and I out to dinner in, in, to another town. And we're sitting there in, in the restaurant, and there's a guy playing piano in the restaurant for background music and that whole thing. And I was informed that he was a, a pastor in, in one of uh, the churches in the area. And uh, if, that, if that was, in fact, true, uh, I struggled a little bit because I looked over there, and he's got a beer propped up right on, on the piano while he's playing it in there. And I, I probably, me personally, would not attend that church over that. But that's, that, maybe that's my problem a little bit. But I think in the culture, when, when Paul wrote and he spoke of just regular Christians and how we handle our liberties, that we lay our liberties aside so that nobody would be stumbled. If, if as a regular Christian I'm to do that, I need to be very, very careful as a leader that no little sheep would be stumbled over some liberty of mine that I can easily live with or live without. And so he's not to be given... To wine. He's not to be violent. He's, he can't be physically violent, pushing people around and badgering people and hitting them. He's got to have control over his temper and over his anger. He needs, we're told, to be not greedy for money. So he's not materialistic. He's not in what God has called him into in order to make money over. And it's dangerous for leaders to be covetous because they're leaders in the church. And 
God has chosen to bring resources into the church through the tithes and the offerings of God's people. And it can't be if, if, the, if the elder or, or the leader, eldership of a church has a problem with materialism, then all of the money is going to go into all of these things that don't have anything to do with the kingdom, notably their pockets or, or, or those things. Or even if it doesn't go into their pockets, it begins to go into a church in ways that are they're wasteful. They don't advance the kingdom because, because the heart of, of the leader is he, he's greedy for money. And so have to be careful of that. Love of money, Paul is going to tell Timothy a little bit, is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice he's also to be gentle. doesn't abuse uh, people or use his position to to uh, be abusive toward people. He's gentle and, and he patiently serves people and he shepherds uh, people. Peter wrote and he said, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. You're, you're not abusive toward people, but being examples to the flock, gentle. He's not to be quarrelsome. He's not to be a fighter where he can't get along with everyone. He's just always got to be fighting with people and arguing and, and, and that, that kind of thing. That makes ministry miserable for everyone. He's not to be covetousness, literally not to be fond of silver, that, that ungodly desire for more. Again, the, the deacons in the early church and even in the, in the church today, but in the early church in, in the book of Acts where they had kind of the disagreement that was happening between the Hellenistic Jews and, and the other Jews and all over the daily distribution and, and, and all, and the elders turned the distribution of the food, the resources that were going uh, to the poor over to the deacons. And if the deacons were covetous and all in wanting everything for themselves, that food would never find its way, uh, you, you know, uh, to them. Well, I'm talking about deacons now, aren't I, <laughs> instead of elders and all. So, but, but both of them, they're not to have this love for money, not to be in it uh, uh, for the money, because otherwise bad things are going to happen. He needs to be one who rules his own house well. That doesn't mean that an elder uh, or a pastor in a church, that they'll never have a disagreement uh, in their marriage, or that their children will uh, never rebel, or they'll never be disobedient, or that, that kind of thing. That kind of thing uh, can happen and does happen. But what it means is when those things happen, that in that home, the home of the elder, the Bible is the standard for how things get resolved. It's the standard for how we live in this house. It's the standard for what we believe uh, in this house. And in the end, the standard of God's Word wins in that, that situation. So he needs to be one that's nurturing his family and he's leading his own family. If a man, and, and before a person, a man ever becomes an elder, uh, the church is free to examine his home as an evidence of how he would then run the local church. And, uh, and to run a family or to oversee a family is uh, much simpler than to oversee a church. A church is much more complicated. You have less authority in, in, a, in a church in many respects than a father does in, in a home. Uh, 
uh, they have to listen to you. People have options in, in, in a church. They just go to another one. Uh, and all. It, but you're dealing with a lot more different personalities and things. If a person can't run their own household, then they're not going to be able to uh, oversee a church because there'll be a lot more problems uh, in, in the running uh, of a church. And, and then he, he says that he's to be one who has his children, that is, those that are still at home being raised in the home, in submission with all reverence. That, and that doesn't mean kids won't be kids. Kids will be kids. And you can't ask a four-year-old to be an adult. A four-year-old is going to be a, a four-year-old. And you have to teach a four-year-old the way a four-year-old needs to be taught and the, these kinds of things. But the children should be submissive to their father's authority. And, and he should exercise his authority. Within, within their life. And they should be obedient, respect the authority that, that he has. And, and again, if he can't rule his children, he's not going to be able to rule uh, the, the church at all. I think another element of the house being in order, the marriage being uh, in order and biblical, the children being in an order and that kind of thing, is when a person becomes an elder, automatically a tremendous target uh, for attack by the enemy, and if the home or the marriage is weak, uh, they're going to be in for all kinds of problems. And so those things need to be in place. He's not to be a novice. He's not to be a brand new uh, believer, brand new Christian. And the person that holds this position, they influence a lot of people, and they need to have some experience. And, and they need to have some maturity, and that takes time. Otherwise, we can get, he, he speaks here about getting lifted up in pride. And, and so it's good. There can be someone that you look at and you say, that man has a calling on his life as an elder, but it's not, it's not yet. He's too young in the faith. And he needs to go through some trials. He needs to go through some difficulty. Uh, he needs to uh, uh, apply the Scriptures to his own life in order to get out of the kind of things that he's finds himself in the middle of and, and, and learn how to do that. And as he goes through difficult trials and he handles them based upon the Word of God, he discovers that the Word is true. And in applying it to our lives, God will always come through and this kind of thing. He'll, always de- he'll also develop compassion for people that, that hard knocks and getting knocked around a little bit produces within us. So it isn't just, you know, this, 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 and this kind of thing, but it's a thing of, wow, I understand exactly what you're going through, or I understand kind of what's happening here. We deal with a person with, with some compassion. And, and if a person is allowed to rise too quickly to a very, very high position within a church, they can be lifted up in pride. I remember when I was a new deacon, I didn't turn my stopwatch on when I started here tonight, and so um, it shows zero. It's like I have just began. I, I'm, I'm close to finishing here, but that's the reason if I'm going longer. I'm at about an hour and 15 minutes right now on things. Uh, um, anyway, uh, so let me just tell you uh, what, what I would have told you if I had enough time. But I heard that. A guy, a guy did that and spoke that, and I thought that was a great line. So anyway, but I remember when I was a new deacon at the Calvary Chapel in Napa, another fellow became a deacon with me on the same day. And I know we're talking about deacon and elder here a little bit, but he, he became a deacon on the same day. And, and before he ever got the title, nicest guy in the whole world. But the day he got the title of deacon, we had a little Napoleon on our hands. I mean, he just walked around and gave everybody orders and the whole deal. And within two weeks, he forced the leadership to yank his title away from him. 
And, and uh, it's just weird what those titles can sometimes do. And uh, so he, he can't be a novice. He needs to, uh, otherwise there can be that tendency to fall uh, in, into pride. And we can ruin a gifting and a calling in someone's life if we move them forward too, too quickly. I remember when I went from being a phone operator in the telephone company, that's how I got onto the company. I was hired as a minority, as a man doing uh, the job of an operator. And uh, so the first thing I wanted was as soon as I could transfer at six months, I wanted to be a lineman. Actually, I wanted to be anything other than a telephone operator. And, uh, and so I, that was the best position to get out. And they sent me to Emeryville for pole climbing school. And before they went, I'm a little bit of a type A guy. I want to get the edge on everything like that. So my father-in-law had these hooks for climbing poles at his house. And they were from like the late 1800s. And the leather was all cracked and broken. And the, and the, uh, you know, the spikes were all just absolutely curved the wrong direction for, for cutting out and the whole thing. But I didn't know, and I'm, I'm going to learn this because I'm not going back to being an operator. So I'm climbing up 18 feet up on this pole in their, in their yard and everything and going up and going down and everything came to find out that that was like the most dangerous thing when I looked at the hooks and how they were sharpened. Crazy to do. Well, I went to pole climbing school and uh, they started us out at six feet. And uh, just up there, six feet, that's as high as they wanted to see your hooks. And you'd go around to the right, and you'd go around to the left, and you go up, and you go down, and you cut in, and all this kind of stuff and everything like that. So they're doing that. So they said, go ahead and do this at six feet. The instructor went inside uh, the trailer, and he came back out. And I'm up at about 15 feet when he came back out. I'm, I've, I've got a lineman job to do here. I can't be in this school. I've got to pass this thing. Gone. He looked up at me. I don't know that I've ever told my wife this, but anyway, got your attention, don't I? But he looked up at me and, and he said, Kyle, he said, you get down to six feet. And he says, if I ever see you above what I've told you to do, I will flunk you out of this course and send you home. Well, he had my attention. Then, and I was a good, obedient little boy the rest of the way. And then he, and he took me aside later. And he said, if you go up too high and you cut out and you don't have the experience to survive burning a pole or cutting out of the pole, he said, your confidence will be so ruined that we'll never get you back up there again. We'll lose alignment. So he said, you've got to have enough time on the lower levels to, that you are confident in what you can do and that thing, so that when you do cut out, and everybody cuts out sooner or later, that when you do cut out, you'll look at it and say, I know what happened to me, and I'm going to go back up. Otherwise, you lose the alignment. But it's the same thing in the body of Christ, that a person doesn't get elevated too quickly. And, and then they cut out spiritually. They do something that is in front of everybody. And then now they say, I'm, ne I'm never going to do that again for the rest of my life. And they sit very politely in a church for the rest of their life. And, and all the walk with the Lord, but, but their confidence has been affected. He needs to be, have a good testimony from those who are on the outside. He needs to have a, a, a good reputation in the community that he's serving. And he doesn't, he doesn't one thing at church, and then he's another thing when he's paying his bills around, around town. They know that he's, he is a 
He's the same thing both places. Lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. The devil looks at at an elder who's living it two ways, one thing in church and another thing out there, and he just looks and he just picks the day he's going to eat that guy for lunch. I think I'll have him Tuesday at about 11.30. And he just takes him out as easy as can be. And and so it, it makes us... Vulnerable. So there you have the characteristics of an elder that God has prepared. There, is, there isn't a thing here where God is saying, um, now, uh, what, what you want to do is, um, you know, somebody really wants to be an elder, or you know that they're a prominent businessman in the community, or you know that they have a certain amount of wealth, or all of these kind of disgusting things that can go into the process. God, God says, this is how you'll know an elder that, I have chosen and prepared for the position. This will be in place not to get the office, but because that's what he's like with me. And when you see it, there's one of your elders, ordain him and give him that that position. These positions are never to be given to hold on to people in the body of Christ or to give it to them and say, now they have the title, now that will be a motivation for them to grow in their walk with the Lord. It should never happen that way. It's given to those who already, because of their love for the Lord, title or no title, this is who I am, this is what I am, and, and then you, God says, there's your guy. Go ahead and give him that position. Let's stand together. The worship team will come forward.